unto them go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard how that the blind see the lame walk the lepers are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised to the poor the gospel is preached Jesus said Go your way and tell John. And what I want to preach tonight is somebody tell John. Let's lift our hands again and thank the Lord for His power and presence in this service. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. 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 Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Oh, we praise you today, Jesus. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. It was... At that gathering of Jesus and his disciples that we call the Last Supper. He must have shocked them all when he suddenly announced all of you shall be offended because of me this night. I believe it must have shocked them and caught them off guard because for just a little bit the twelve men that sat at table with Jesus that night recognized their own humanity. And for just a moment, every one of them saw the potential for failure that was in each of them.
Because when he said, one of you shall betray me. Every one of them asked, Lord, is it I? I wonder how relieved they must have been when he took the piece of bread and he dipped it in a sauce and he handed it to Judas. After having said that to whom I hand the sop, he is the betrayer. And when he handed it to Judas and he said, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Judas stood and left that room and went into the night. There must have been a collective sigh of relief from those others who had asked, Lord, is it I? Then later when he announced that each of them would be offended, there was a difference. The eleven men that had only moments before at least considered the idea that they might have been the betrayer adamantly denied that they would ever be offended because of Him. In fact, Simon Peter went so far as to say, though all men shall be offended, if everybody else here, if everybody gets discouraged, if everybody else quits, I will never be offended because of you. Jesus responded to Simon's statement by saying, Oh yeah? Then let me tell you that on this very night, tonight, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. Three times. Oh no, said Simon Peter. I would die first. But I will never deny thee. And the Bible says, likewise also said all the disciples. But let me tell you something. I don't have to spend a lot of time giving you the details of what happened that night in the courtyard of the high priest's palace. When warming by the fire as Jesus was interrogated and tortured, Simon Peter was approached by someone who said, I think you're one of his disciples. And the man who had made the statement that I will die before I'll deny. I wonder how hard it was for him to say those words. I wonder if they didn't at first catch in his throat. But finally he said it. I don't know him. A little later, someone else came by. Perhaps they said, I remember seeing you at the temple. You're one of His main men. This time, it was a little easier. I tell you, he said, I don't know him. And finally, it was a servant girl who came by. It's your accent, she said. You're a Galilean. You're one of them. 
And this time, he swore. And with an oath, he said, I tell you, I don't know him. And in the distance, he heard a rooster crow. A door slammed back and Jesus was thrust onto a balcony. And no wonder when their eyes met, the heart of the big fisherman broke. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Simon Peter discovered that words come easy. But there is a vast difference in the reality of life and the promises of the mouth. Theory is one thing. Reality is another. Peter discovered that words came so easy with a full belly in a warm upper room surrounded by his friends, but alone in a courtyard facing imprisonment or death. Words didn't mean very much. And he discovered how easy it is to lose your determination and cross the line. In the presence of God, sitting there with Jesus in their midst, it was easy to say, I'll serve you regardless. I'll never give up. I'll never give in. Let others back up. I'll never back up. Let others get discouraged. I'll never get discouraged. It's easy in a camp meeting with the glory of God falling and choirs singing and worship going for us to say, Lord, this is all I want. I don't care what happens. I'll never turn back. I'll serve you. It's easy to say it in the presence of God. But when heaven is brass and prayers seem unanswered and trouble piles higher than you could ever imagine, then you discover that there's a difference in real life. And what happens at camp meetings? We might as well face it tonight. I want to be very honest with you. And I hope you'll be honest with yourself. You get home from this conference, let me tell you something. It's going to have the same heartaches, the same problems. You'll have to deal with the same folks. The job will be waiting there for you. Pastors, the same church struggles. The same thing that you have faced before you came, you're going to have to face it when you get home. And regardless of what happens here, when the lights are finally out and the last song is sung and the last altar service ends, then it's going to be real life again and you're going to have to face it all by yourself just like you did before you came. And though you might have made a lot of promises, I want you to know discouragement can come and sit on your shoulder and drag you back down to the bottom. That's just the way it is. And I can't change it. And you can't change it. Discouragement can come to anybody. I really believe that I am preaching to folks that know exactly what I'm talking about. There are people here that have sat alone in a dark room and thought thoughts they would never share with anybody. There are people here that have thought about quitting, about giving up. Who did I think I was fooling anyway? 
There are pastors that have decided it just isn't worth it. It's just not worth the strain and the effort. There are men and women here that have thought about cashing in, throwing in the towel, giving it all up. It's just too hard. And I want to preach to you tonight, you're not alone. And it's not unusual. Discouragement comes to everybody. can be so hard. No matter who we are, what our name is, none of us are so strong that life could not crush us beneath its weight. Every one of us here tonight are one phone call away from disaster. Heartbreaks, loss, disappointments, A lifetime of effort swept away in an hour. Nothing left but dust and ashes. I should have never tried. Who did I think I was kidding? I should have never thought I could. I want you to understand some things about discouragement tonight. And the first one is... You're in good company. It happens to the very best. David says that his foot almost slipped. He talked of encouraging himself. He didn't even have anybody to help him at all. And so he says, I encouraged myself in the Lord. Elijah called down fire from heaven and only hours later sat under a juniper tree and said, God, just kill me. It isn't worth going on. Job, the patient, reached the place where he cursed the day he was ever born and said, I wish I had never lived. Moses made one stab at his destiny and gave up for 40 years. And even when a bush burst into flame, he tried to get somebody else drafted instead of him. Lord, here am I. Send my brother. So if you're discouraged tonight, the first thing I want you to know is you're not alone and there's nothing wrong. It's part of being human. Discouragement comes to the very best. And so when the devil perches on your shoulder and says if you were what you ought to be, he wouldn't be discouraged. It's a lie. Discouragement happens to the best. John was the greatest of the prophets. I want you to think about that for just a moment. I didn't say that. That's not Clarence Larkin's theory. Jesus Christ said that John was the greatest. Greater than Isaiah. Greater than Jeremiah. Greater than the fiery Elijah. Greater than the smooth and suave Elisha. Greater than the visionary Ezekiel. Greater than Amos. Greater than Daniel. Greater than Jonah. The greatest of the prophets. And he had a theory. What a man he was. Look what God decided to use him in. He was selected to introduce 
Jesus Christ to Israel. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. With His own hands, He baptized Jesus in the river Jordan. He saw heaven open. He saw the Spirit of God descend in the form of a dove. And He heard the voice of God say, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well. Please just think about what it meant for John to baptize Jesus Christ. Oh, what a preacher he was. He didn't have a good location for his church. He was out in the boondocks. And yet the Bible says all of Jerusalem left the city and came to find it where he was preaching. Even when he scourged them and his fiery words lanced their backs, he cried to the Pharisees, Who warned you, you snakes, to escape from the wrath to come? Still they came. His name was on every lip. They were baptized, no doubt, by the thousands. What a preacher! What a man of God! And at the height of his ministry, when all hung on his ever word, he made this statement. He, speaking of Jesus Christ, must increase. But I must decrease. Easy to say, John, when all of Jerusalem is coming out to hear you preach. Easy to say when your name is on every lip. When power is falling. When the glory of God is moving. When thousands are being baptized. But when He was locked away in a dungeon, and His disciples had dwindled down to only two. And nobody seemed to care. And nobody seemed to notice. Then it became not just theory, but it became reality. When trouble is not academic anymore, when trouble is not something that happens to other people, when you are going through that valley of travail and discouragement and even despair, then suddenly all the words you might have ever said count for nothing. And discouragement can come to the very best. John called those last two disciples. He spoke to them through the bars of the little window in the dungeon cell where he lived. He said, I want you to go to Jesus. And I want you to ask Him for me. Are you really the Messiah? Or should we look for another? Do you know what John was really saying? Have I wasted my life? Have I invested my energy, my strength, in the wrong cause? Was it all for nothing? Have I made a tragic mistake? I want you to understand something very clearly tonight. John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets, he who baptized Jesus Christ and heard the voice of the Spirit say, This is my beloved Son, 
reached such a level of discouragement where he doubted whether Jesus was really the Messiah. You've got to understand. You've got to get it in your head. That discouragement can come. Deep and bitter discouragement. You can wade through waters dark and chilly. Your faith itself may be shaken. Ask Him, are you really the Messiah? Or have I made a terrible mistake? But not only must we understand that discouragement comes to the very best, much less to the rest. But we've got to learn from my text tonight what Jesus' reaction to John's discouragement was. He did not rebuke John. How easily it would have been for him to say, after all you have felt, after all you have seen, after all I've done for you, you baptized me, John. You saw heaven open. You heard the voice of God. You knew who I was then. I'm shocked. I'm offended. I'm insulted that you would ever doubt who I was. He could have said it, but he never said it. He did not judge John. He did not condemn John. He did not criticize John. Instead, he whirled to the crowd that was around him and he unleashed an avalanche of his power. He let go a whirlwind of his majesty. He opened a blind eye. He made deaf ears to hear. He made dumb tongues to talk. He raised the dead. He preached the gospel. And then he turned and said, Somebody go and tell John you didn't make a mistake. You didn't invest in the wrong cause. What you did was right. I am who I said I was. When you walked down that Pentecostal aisle and repented of your sins and was filled with the Holy Ghost, you didn't make a mistake. When you gave your heart to God and answered the call to the ministry, you didn't make a mistake. When you heard the call to your city and you went there, you didn't make a mistake. Discouragement is a liar. It will tremble our very faith. But Jesus Christ is the same regardless of how I feel. Somebody tell John, you aren't wrong. I am the Messiah. Now Jesus was saying a lot of things to John. I don't have time, I think, to deal with all the nuances of his words. I think he said, John, you're in prison, but I'm not. You're discouraged, but I'm not. Nobody's hearing you preach, but you ought to see the crowds that are coming out to my meetings. You can't do much, it seems, but my power is undiminished. I so appreciate Brother Cole's willingness to be open and honest yesterday morning. 
I don't know if you realize how difficult it is for a man of his stature to stand before a camp meeting crowd and confess to bitterness and confess to an anger that ate away in his soul. A bitterness to the degree that when another preacher was invited to preach in his stead, he wept and cried, there is no justice. But he did that to tell you something about God. God did not judge. God did not condemn. But instead, God delivered. And you hear me? No matter how you feel tonight, Jesus Christ is alive and well and at work in your life and in your church. He was saying, life is too hard for you, John. But it's not too hard for me. You're in prison. You're discouraged. But my power is able to take care of whatever you're struggling against. I am still free, John, to do your bidding. And thirdly, and I think probably the most difficult to understand is he was saying, I could get you out. I do have that power. But there is a purpose at work in your life. So somebody tell John, don't worry about the theology. Don't worry about the Old Testament prophets. Just go tell John what you see and what you hear. I want you to know our world needs to get the message that Jesus Christ is who He says He is. He is not the figment of preachers' imaginations. I wish somebody would tell John. I wish somebody could have told Marjorie once before she met Dr. Kavorakin in that 35-day, dollar-a-day cabin in the Michigan woods. Marjorie left an epitaph that haunts me to this very day. She said, if God won't come to me, then I am going to find God. And she triggered that suicide machine and launched herself into eternity. Oh, Marjorie, I wish somebody could have got to you before you made that fatal mistake and could have said, Marjorie, He has come to you. He came to you 2,000 years ago when He walked this earth and gave His life. But more than that, He's willing to come to you today and touch your life and give you a reason to live. Somebody needs to tell John. Our world is full of desperate people who once had dreams and goals but are now overwhelmed by life and its cruelty. A suicide how-to book scales the heights to the number one slot in the New York Times bestseller list. Somebody needs to tell John. A man walks into a cafeteria and coldly murders 26 people and his neighbors shrug their shoulders and say, I guess he couldn't cope anymore. My God, somebody needs to tell John. Jesus is your answer. He is alive and he is well. And I tell you the church needs to hear the same message. Hurting saints and preachers Depression and glooms everywhere. Pressure destroying ministries. Men flinging up their hands and saying it's not worth going on. Preachers struggling to preach 
Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night Bible study, living in depression and loneliness, barely holding on by their fingernails. Somebody needs to get the message. Somebody needs to tell John, Jesus didn't make a mistake. You're where you are in the will of God. Our lives are not wasted. He can, He will send revival to us. Hang on a little longer, John. The answer is on the way. Our generation desperately needs a word of hope. Proverbs says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. But it brings it down even clearer than that. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. What I say can save or what I choose not to say can kill. It is in the power of communication that life or death is decided. It is such a basic human need that in desperate hours of hurting and longing that there is such a hunger to reach out and to hear somebody anybody with some word hope to cause us to continue on. There is a deep vital human need for communication to hear that somebody knows and somebody cares. Prisoners, especially POWs locked behind barbed wire, tell of their desperate efforts to communicate one with another. Secret codes devised to communicate through stone walls, across courtyards, through barbed wire, reaching out to anybody, somebody. Does anybody know? Does anybody care? Is anybody out there? Lonely prisoners locked away in solitary for hours, days, weeks, months, and sometimes years, tapping on walls, the ceiling, the floor, fingers and, and elbows and this and tin cups, whatever they can do to somehow, some way, get a word of hope. A word of hope. Of all American POWs that suffered in the Vietnam War, none suffered more than Vice Admiral James B. Stockdale. Admiral Stockdale spent more than seven years in a Vietnamese prisoner of war camp. 2,714 days. Most of the time he was the ranking officer in any camp he was in and was often singled out for especially cruel treatment. Anytime another prisoner stepped out of line, they often punished Admiral Stockdale in an effort to break him and to break the uh, line of command among the prisoners of war. One time after a particularly uh, angering uh, effort by the prisoners, Admiral Stockdale was locked away in solitary confinement in a pitch black room for a number of weeks. Suddenly, without warning, he was drugged from that room into a brilliantly sunlit courtyard. And there he was flung down almost immediately, coming out of the darkness into that harsh light, drained him of all of his strength. Admiral Stockdale was flung to the ground. His hands were rudely and cruelly handcuffed behind his back. His legs were ironed together and he was left lying in that blazing sun for three days. 
with barely enough water to survive and no food at all, Admiral Stockdale was soon reduced to near death. Any time he would doze off and start to sleep, his captors would come and kick him and beat him until he was awake again. After three days of this inhuman treatment, Admiral Stockdale testified, I knew I was dying. He had sunk into a near coma. He hardly knew anything about what was going on. He later said, I don't know how long it had been going on before I even realized that a sound, a noise was there. I lay in my stupor and I listened to it for a long time before I ever understood that it was rhythmic. It was a repetition, the same sound, a dull, thumping, popping sound again and again and again. He said, I lay and listened a long while longer before it finally penetrated my dying mind that somebody was trying to communicate with me through prison code. I couldn't figure out how they were doing it. Later, he said, I discovered that someone at great risk to themselves was standing at the window of a cell with a bath towel in their hands and they were popping that bath towel over and over again sending a message to Admiral Stockdale lying near death in the sun in that courtyard over and over for who knows how long. Admiral Stockdale said it could have been for hours, but they never quit. They kept telegraphing. They kept sending the message again and again. And he said, finally, after the longest of times, I understood what the message was. Somebody was saying over and over in an effort to communicate, God bless you, Jim Stockdale. God bless you, Jim Stockdale. God bless you, Jim Stockdale. And he said, when I understood that somebody knew what I was going through and somebody cared about my suffering and somebody wanted me to live, it did something in my soul and I made up my mind, I will not die. And Admiral Stockdale limped down a gangplank one day and stooped to the tarmac and kissed the soil of the good old USA and told Dr. Julius Seagal, it's because somebody got the word to me. Don't give up. Don't give in. You can make it if you try. Somebody has got to find them wherever they are and reach for them behind the bars of their discouragement and tell them, hang on a little longer. Somebody, tell John. Somebody reach that discouraged pastor and tell him, preach another sermon, pastor. Pray another prayer. Somebody's got to tell John. Somebody's got to find that mother, that wife whose husband is not saved who is on her last legs at the end of her rope, just about ready to give up. Somebody's got to notice. Somebody's got to care. Somebody's got to get a message. God bless you, Jim Stockdale. Somebody has got to tell John, I know you're in prison now, but Jesus said for me to tell you, He knows what you're going through, and He loves you just the same, and His mercy is able to reach you where you are. Somebody tell John. Don't quit now.
Don't give up now. Somebody. Tell John. I've always wondered where they found him. I I know the scripture story is a little nebulous, but I've always imagined maybe it was a little dark back street on the seamier side of Jerusalem. It was staggering like a drunken man. Those massive shoulders hunched, that head bowed. Hardly recognizable. We don't know who it was. But somebody found him there said Simon is that you and that head came up and the eyes filled with tears first thing he said I denied him did you know that I said I died first. I meant it when I said it. But I was alone. And I was so scared. I didn't mean to. Now he's dead. And the last, the last he ever saw me, I was letting him down. Mean to. I denied him. Did you know that? Yes, Simon, said the one who found him. But I've come to tell you something. He's not dead, he's alive. <laughs> alive. Jesus? Yes. You remember? He said, destroy this temple. Three days, I'll raise it up. Cleopas and his companion met him on the road to Emmaus. It was Jesus. He's alive. And he sent me with a message. Those shoulders are squared again. That chin is high. The eyes are clearing. A message for me? What did he say? He said, tell my disciples that I go before them into Galilee and I'll be waiting for them there. But the shoulders sagged and the chin fell to the chest again. That's not me. I'm not fit. I feel it. I'm not a disciple. He couldn't be. Well, you know, Simon, he must have thought you'd feel that way. Because there were 11 names he could have used, but he only used one. He said, tell my disciples and be sure and tell Simon Peter. I'll be waiting. I'll be in Galilee. 
Will you come? Will you go? You better believe I'll go. And so it was that in the early dawning, it was the younger, sharper eyes of John sitting in the bow of the boat that first saw the form knelt by the fire and recognized him and announced to the other eleven, It's the Master! But John might have been younger, but he wasn't quicker because the first one out of the boat was that big fisherman that had denied the Master in the courtyard. He splashed through the surf and he pounded across the sand and he slid to his knees at the foot of Jesus and he said, Why don't you give up on me? Why don't you leave me? For I am a sinful man. I'm sorry I let you down. I said I'd never do it, but I did it. I didn't mean to. I was afraid. And Jesus touched him and said, I know all about it. I know what you did. I know you didn't intend it. I know what discouragement can do. But I've only got three questions for you. Okay. How many times did you deny me? Three. Then here's three questions. Do you love me? I love you. That's one. Second question. Do you love me? I love you. That's two. Third question. Do you really love me more than anything in all the world? Discouragement can bring you to the point of utter despair. So there is nothing left but one sure thing. I love you. Lord, you know all things. And you know I love you. Then get up. I've got a sermon for you to preach. I've got some keys for you to use. i got a church for you to build. Come on. Let's start over. Somebody has got to tell John. He has not abandoned you. He's not upset, not offended, even if you've reached the point of doubting whether He is God. He still loves you. And He's waiting in Galilee. Let's pray right now. Now I'm going to give, as everyone stands, a two-part appeal. First of all, I want to fulfill my charge because Jesus told me to go my way, my way, and tell John. So John, you're here tonight. I'm standing on my tiptoes. I've got my hands reached up and caught a hold of the bars of your prison cell. I've come to tell you, don't quit. Don't give up. I've told him what you said. 
And he said, go tell him. You didn't make a mistake. You are not wrong. I'm still in charge. And it's going to be all right, John. It's going to be all right, John. So, John, if you're here tonight, he's waiting for you. Camp meeting 92, it's your meeting. So many things surging through your soul. So many questions and fears. So many things you meant and could not do. He knows. But He still loves you. So John, I invite you to come and hear in the sand by the seashore. Tell him all about it. He's got a question for you. Will you come and answer that question? Come on, John. Come on, John. <laughs> I love my shamai. Come on.